Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ben, and uh, of course, if you're reading along with us, you know that that next book that he's referencing is the book of Leviticus. And if you have been reading along with us, you spent the last week and a half reading the book of Leviticus. I'm guessing there are some of you who stopped reading with us in the last (laughs) week and a half, uh, or maybe you've improved on your skimming skills because uh, it's hard, isn't it? The, The book of Leviticus is not an easy book to read. It's filled with rules about diet and dress and religious rituals, and some of it seems really random and sometimes just strange, doesn't it? I mean, there's things in there, like in Leviticus 11, we find out that eating locusts is okay, but eating shrimp is bad, and that's not the way that I see it. (laughs) I mean, I guess if you put enough cocktail sauce on anything, it would be edible, but uh, we also read in Leviticus 19 that God liked sideburns because the Hebrew men weren't allowed to cut them, but then it goes on to say that tattoos aren't allowed, And, uh, and that seems weird to us. Also in chapter 19... We read that clothing made of mixed fibers is forbidden, and this one is a real bummer uh, to me especially because a few years ago, I switched to blue jeans with just a little bit of spandex in them, and I got to tell you, uh, the freedom is incredible, and so... Uh, That one, if it was still, anyway. In Leviticus 20, we find that talking back to your parents can actually get you stoned to death, and all the parents said, amen, that's right. Now, none of this is intended to make light of God's word, but just to to recognize and to tell you that uh, when you read this, it seems strange. When I read this, some of it seems strange. Some of it, uh, you just kind of scratch your head, right? Why is that in there? Why is one thing considered impure and another thing pure? And why is it that we still adhere to some of the laws and some of them uh, we don't at all? Like when we read in the law that uh, certain sexual behaviors are prohibited, why, why do we adhere to those laws But then when it says not to eat shrimp, well, we ignore that one altogether, right? And aren't we just picking and choosing what parts we want to follow when we do that? That's what a lot of people think, but it's actually not the case. The fact is uh, that the Levitical law was part of the old covenant. And as followers of Jesus, we're not under the old covenant anymore. Uh, We're under the new covenant. Christ instituted this new covenant with his own death and burial and resurrection, and that means that not everything found in the Old Testament is still uh, applicable to us today. Some of it is, but not all of it. So how do we know what is and isn't still in effect for followers of Jesus today? Well, the general principle is this. If it's commanded in the Old Testament and reaffirmed in the New, it's still for you. Okay, and so we we can use that principle, and there are a number of things that you'll find in the New Testament that were actually commanded in the Old, and and God still requires that of his followers, Uh, but this is just the general principle. That's a helpful thing to keep in mind as you're reading any of the Old Testament, but Bible scholars are also largely in agreement that there are three different types or categories of laws in the book of Leviticus. I want to show you what they are, Uh, three types of laws. You've got, first of all, civil laws. Uh, These would have um, 
been laws about punishments for crimes, uh, what would be considered a crime, what's the restitution for that. You have ceremonial laws. These are the things that indicated what makes you impure and what to do about it. What's the ceremony you need to perform to become pure again? And then you have the moral laws. And these uh, show us God's definition for good and evil. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, he said something that was so profound about his relationship to the book of Leviticus, to the law. And uh, Matthew recorded it for us in his gospel. In chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said this. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, I want you to, to think for a minute. What does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law? Well, it means that everything found in the book of Leviticus ultimately pointed to him. And we're going to see that as we move throughout our time this morning. Jesus was the fulfillment of all that the law required. He was man as God intended man to be. Now, with that in mind, I want you to think back about these three types of laws found in Leviticus. We mentioned the civil laws, and these defined the nation of Israel. And it was the nation from which Jesus would be born. And uh, he came from the nation of Israel, but in his life and death, Jesus actually established a new Israel, so to speak, a spiritual Israel, and it's his church. And while I would argue that God still has a special plan and purpose for the people of Israel, uh, all throughout the book of Acts and beyond, you can see that Christ's church is no longer bound by these civil laws found in Leviticus. When you think about the, the second category, the ceremonial laws, these were given to show God's purity and to highlight Israel's impurity and then to show them what to do about it. Um, all of these laws were perfectly fulfilled in Christ's sinless life and his sacrificial death. And we read in the book of Hebrews that if we, as followers of Jesus, have accepted his sacrifice, we no longer need all of those lesser sacrifices and ceremonies. They were a shadow of the reality. The reality is Christ, and he has come. So the ceremonial laws, just like the civil laws, are no longer binding on Christ's church today. And that leaves us just one other category, and it's the moral law. Again, they, they define good and evil for us, God's definition of, of those things. And these laws actually still apply to us today. Jesus reaffirmed all of the moral law. He, he never once, in fact, none of the New Testament writers ever once negated a single point from the moral law. And because we are Christ's disciples, we are following his lead, we are committed to loving what he loved and calling sinful what he has called sinful, uh, we do that even when everyone else around us thinks differently about these things. And that's why Christians view shrimp and sex very differently. It's not simply picking and choosing what we want to follow. It's interpreting the old covenant in light of the new, right? It's releasing what the New Testament says to release, and it's holding tightly to the things that Christ held tightly to, all right? So I hope that's helpful for you. Um, Maybe you've had a question like that. Maybe you've had to, to answer a question like that. But this morning, I want to focus in on just one chapter in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. So if you brought a Bible with you, you can turn to Leviticus chapter 16. And that's where I really want to focus because chapter 16 is really the pinnacle 
of the entire book of Leviticus. In it, we're going to see that God gave special instructions about a very important day, and it became the most important day in the entire Jewish calendar. It's a day that's called Yom Kippur. Uh, That literally means the day of the covering or the day of atonement. And uh, I want you to listen to what the Moody Bible Commentary says about Yom Kippur. The ceremonies described, it says, in chapter 16 were unique among the priestly rituals. The day was a reminder that the nation's ritual uncleanness imperiled the whole nation before God. Impurity could make God's continued dwelling in their midst impossible. So various sacrifices were needed to purge uncleanness caused by sin. The Day of Atonement became the holiest day of the year for the Israelites, for on that day all the sin of the nation, all the sins of the nation were atoned for by vicarious blood sacrifice. Okay, so once a year, the practices that we find in Leviticus 16 were performed, and this would cover over all of the sins of the nation of Israel, and it would allow God to continue dwelling in their midst. So starting in verse 2 of chapter 16, here's what we read. It says, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. Uh, I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover and this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. Now let's pause right there. God is gonna give some very specific steps that that the high priest, in this case um, Aaron, Moses' brother, will need to take in order to preserve his life in this process. And if you've been reading along with us, you know that Aaron had a couple of sons who were also priests. They decided that they could do whatever they wanted to in the temple. They did not follow God's instructions, and God struck them dead for it. So this is really important stuff. I mean, God is just saying, you can't just come and go whenever you want to. This is my house, this is my temple, and my rules apply, okay? Now, I want to remind you where this is all taking place. I want you to picture it in your mind. Remember, the tabernacle was the physical representation of God's presence with the nation of Israel, And so the people constructed a a tabernacle. It likely looked something like this. Um, And it was right in the middle of their camp. The tabernacle itself had three separate areas. We have a diagram showing it. It had the outer court. It had the holy place. And then it had, on this diagram, what's called the holy of holies, or sometimes it's called the most holy place. And anyone who was ceremonially clean could enter that outer courtyard but only the priests could enter the holy place. And the holy place is where several of the sacred furnishings were. First, there was the lampstand, and uh, this is also called the menorah. It stayed lit day and night as a, a continual reminder of God's continual presence with the people. And the Mishnah actually tells us that the lampstand was designed to look like the tree of life. You heard in the opening video that much of what was inside of the, the tabernacle uh, harkened back from the Garden of Eden. Well, it said that the, the lampstand was designed to look like the tree of life. Well, then there was also the table of showbread. In the, in the holy place, there was this table. It had 12 loaves of freshly baked bread placed on it every Sabbath. And this, that bread was called the bread of the presence. It was symbolic of the fact that God would always provide for his people. And then finally, in that first area, the holy place, was the altar of incense. 
and it stood right in front of the most holy place, and it represented two things. First, it created an initial barrier between uh, the holy place and the most holy place. It was, you know, a smoke barrier of sorts. But it also represented the prayers of the people as the, the fragrant offering of the incense would billow up and seep back into the Holy of Holies and go before the presence of God. It was a reminder uh, of God and, and to the people of those prayers going before him into his presence. Now, separating the holy place from the most holy place was a veil, uh, or think of it as a curtain. But this was, a, this was more than just like the curtain that hangs over your windows. This curtain was four inches thick. Okay, so this is a beefy curtain, right? And uh, it was woven from red and blue and purple cords. In Hebrew, the, the curtain was called the paraket. And that, that word literally means shut off because that's what this curtain did. It, it shut off the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle. And behind that curtain in the Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was located. We have a picture of the actual Ark of the Covenant, which is really incredible uh, that Indiana Jones was able to find that. No, not, I'm kidding, not that one. But this is maybe a, a representation of what that Ark looked like. And inside of the Ark were a few sacred relics. Inside of it were Aaron's staff that had budded. Uh, there was a jar of manna, the food that God had provided for the Israelites in the desert. And then also inside of it were the uh, stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. Now, on top of the ark were two golden angels with their wings outstretched, and they were overshadowing what is known as the mercy seat, that cover of the ark. Uh, it became known as the mercy seat. And right there is where the, the presence of God would dwell. And that is also where the priests would pour the blood offerings that are going to be uh, prescribed here in Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, they're going to happen on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And in the opening verses of Leviticus 16, again, God told Moses that Aaron, the high priest, he can't just go in and out whenever he wants to. In fact, there's only one day each year when he would be allowed to enter the most holy place, and that is on the Day of Atonement. Now, God goes on in Leviticus 16 uh, to give some very specific details of what is to take place on that day. I want to share with you a summary of that. It's, uh, it's kind of broken up throughout the chapter, but there's an Old Testament scholar named Ray Dillard who did a really good job of, of summarizing what would happen on that day. Listen to this. It says, a week before Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter seclusion. Okay, so a week ahead of time, he takes himself out of society. He's taken away from his home to a place completely alone so that he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. And if you're reading with us, you probably recognize that it would be really hard just to live day-to-day -day life without becoming impure in some way. And so that's why he's putting himself into seclusion. Clean food was brought to him. He'd wash his body and prepare his heart. And then the night before Yom Kippur, he stayed up all night praying and reading to purify his soul. But when the day arrived, he bathed from head to toe and he dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Finally, he would enter the Holy of Holies and he would offer an animal sacrifice to God to atone for his own sin. And that, after that, he came out, he bathed again, a new white linen was put on him, and he would enter a second time, now sacrificing for the sins of the priests. 
And he would come out again, he would bathe a third time, and then enter once again, once again in a a new white linen, sacrificing and finally atoning for the sins of all the people. Okay, so so three different times the high priest would enter the most holy place, sacrificing first for himself and then for the priests and then for all of the people. Now, in the midst of, of this ceremony, there was another ritual that was performed, and it involved two goats. One goat was sacrificed as part of the sin offering, but the other was actually set free. I want you to see what Leviticus 16 says about that second goat. In verse 10, we read, but the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat, you're probably familiar with that phrase, shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And then a little farther down in verse 21, we read, the priest is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. He's to put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness. Okay? So if you got the picture of this, the atonement day, the the day of Yom Kippur included not only blood sacrifices, but also the sending away of the scapegoat as a picture of the removal of guilt and sin. And just as a side note, uh, this this is somewhat amusing, but there was actually an account, an occasion when they released this scapegoat out into the wilderness only to have it wander back into camp a few days later. And can you imagine uh, the shock of the people? And and here comes all of our sins back into camp, and what are we supposed to do? Well, what they did is they added something to the ceremony. From that point forward, when they would send the scapegoat out into the wilderness, the man who was appointed to lead it out uh, was also charged with um, kicking it off a cliff or making just anything to make sure that it never came back, okay? So for those of you who thought, oh, good, the the goat got off (laughs) free. No, he didn't. Uh, But do you see how the tabernacle and the law and the day of atonement, all of these rituals, all of these sacrifices, they all worked together to display for the nation of Israel God's holiness and their unholiness, Because God, in his great love and mercy for his people, he was giving them a way to be freed from their guilt and from their sins. Now, maybe you're thinking, now, that's all all neat, that's all cool history, but what does it have to do with me? Well, let me suggest three things that the book of Leviticus still shows us today. And the first one is this. Our sin is worse than we think. Our sin is actually worse than we think. As we read through these passages in the book of Leviticus, we should, we should have this sense inside of us that maybe I have taken my sin too lightly. We should have, have a, a sense of, man, maybe I haven't rightly weighed what my sin has done to my relationship with God, and maybe I've underestimated what I actually deserve for it. See, most of us um, approach sin with a very man-centered view. That is to say that, that we look at a lot of things that God would call sin and, and we, we think, well, what's the big deal about that, right? 
It was just a small embellishment. Nobody's ever going to know. People have lied about much bigger things. What's the big deal, right? Or, or maybe I just took something that nobody's ever going to notice anyway. It's not even really stealing. Nobody's even using it. I just took something little. What's the big deal? Or maybe I let my thoughts run wild. Maybe I had lust in my mind, but I didn't actually, you know, do anything. I didn't have an affair. So what's the big deal about that? And we think, well, it's not really that bad, but it is. Because God is perfect, and he requires nothing less than absolute perfection. Even the smallest amount of impurity uh, is disgusting and repulsive to God. And so to help you kind of grasp that, I want you to think about this. Maybe uh, you and I are together, and we're working outside, and it's a hot day, and I offer you a glass of water, and you would really like to have that glass of water. But before you take it, I say, hey, there's something that I need to tell you. Um, I put a little bit of urine in that water. And I know it's bad, it's dirty, and I shouldn't have done it, but it was just a really little tiny bit of pee. I put pee in there. And Bear Grylls drinks his pee all the time, right? So what's the big deal? It's just a little bit. Uh, drink up. Are you going to care that that glass is 99% pure, or are you going to be thinking about the very small percent that is not pure at all. If the latter is true, then I would suggest that you can maybe kind of see how God views our sin, only to a much greater degree, right? The standard isn't pretty good. The standard is absolute purity. God is holy, he is perfect, and he requires us to be perfect. And just to be clear, none of us gets there on our own. None of us. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's how we all are in respect to God's holiness and to his standard of perfection. We have all sinned. None of us is pure. We have missed the mark. And no matter how we try to justify it or minimize it or compare it to what somebody else maybe did and how that was so much worse, uh, the reality is, and the book of Leviticus shows us, that our sin is actually much worse than we often think. In fact, Romans goes on to tell us that the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. Our sin has earned us death. But here's something else we see in Leviticus. It not only shows us that our sin is worse than we think, but also this, that God's grace is greater than we can imagine. God's grace is greater than we can imagine. I want to go back to the, uh, the illustration of the two goats one more time because it actually illustrates two different things that God did and would do in regard to our sin. I told you that, that the first goat, one of the goats, was slaughtered as a sacrifice for sin. That points to the theological concept of propitiation. And if you read from an older version of the Bible, the KJV or one of those, uh, that word propitiation will show up quite a bit. The, the word itself starts with the prefix pro, which, which means for. It's something done for someone else. The wages of sin is death, but propitiation puts that death on someone or something else. You didn't have to die because someone or something else died in your place. That's propitiation. Okay, but the other goat, the scapegoat, wasn't sacrificed. It, it was sent away. It was removed. And this is highlighting the, the theological concept of expiation. 
expiation, the prefix ex meaning out of or from. So God not only places the punishment for our sins on another, but he also completely removes that sin from us. The first goat showed God's forgiveness on the basis of a substitute. The second shows that he has utterly removed our sin, separated from us, and it is, it's gone forever. The psalmist actually captured this concept of expiation in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, when he wrote these words. He said, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And the really interesting thing about the word that is translated here as forgiveness is that it's a pretty rare word in the Hebrew. This word is only used three times in the entire Old Testament, and it is literally translated as cutting off. Okay, so to read it that way, if you, if you Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is a cutting off. And Alexander McLaren points to the fact in his commentary that by using that word, it's painting a picture for us of the merciful surgery by which God removes the cancerous tumor from our souls. That is expiation. The sin is not only paid for, it is completely removed from us and gone forever. And I know that there are some of you here today who have done something in your past that to you seems uh, impossible that God would ever consider forgiving someone like you for doing something like that. I mean, you, you see other people and God's forgiveness is for, for them, but if you knew what I did and you knew what I said and, and if anybody found out, there's just, there's no way that God's forgiveness could reach me. If that is you, I want you to pay close attention to what's said of the atonement described in Leviticus 16 in verse 16 of that chapter. Look at this. It says, in this way, in what way? In all of this ceremony and all of the sacrifices, in this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites whatever their sins have been. Whatever their sins have been. Do you see any conditions in there at all? Do you see any asterisk? Do you see any footnote listing except for these? Like if you do this stuff, right, it doesn't cover that. But everything else, no, because it's not there. The atonement covered every sin whatever the sins may be. And so your sin is bad. It's actually worse than you think. But God's grace is greater than you can imagine. Because there's one more thing you need to know about the book of Leviticus, and this is the best part. It's the fact that it all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And nowhere is this better seen than in the New Testament book of Hebrews. Uh, in that book, which was actually a letter written to Jewish believers who were experiencing persecution, uh, the writer is, is trying to encourage these folks. He's trying to tell them to, to persevere, to, to keep pushing on. It's believed by some scholars that, that these Jewish converts to Christianity likely lived in or near the city of Jerusalem. 
and they likely had an intimate knowledge of the temple and of the laws and the sacrifices. And in Hebrews chapter 9, the author spends the first five verses describing the tabernacle and its two rooms and, and all of the things that we looked at before, the, the, the showbread, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant. He, he starts out by walking back through all of those things. But then I want you to listen to what he says in, in verse 6. This is in the New Living Translation. He says, when these things were in place, again, all of the elements of the tabernacle, when these things were in place, the priests regularly entered that first room as they performed their religious duties, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and then only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. Listen to this. It says, this is an illustrating illustration pointing to the present time for the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the conscience of the people who bring them. And he's going to go on in chapter 10 to say, listen, the, the blood of, of goats, the blood of bulls, that doesn't take away sin. That it was never intended to. But listen, in verse, tw- verse 11, he says this. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats, not the blood of calves, he entered the most holy place with his own blood once for all time and secured our redemption forever. It all pointed to Jesus. All of it. Christ was the menorah. He was the lampstand. He said of himself, I am the light of the world. Jesus was the table of showbread. He said in John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. All who come to me will never hunger again. Jesus was the altar of incense. Hebrews also tells us that that throughout his life on earth, he was continually offering up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him. Jesus was the curtain which was a symbol of Christ's torn flesh ripped apart so that we could enter that most holy place. Jesus was the scapegoat carrying away our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he has become for us the mercy seat. One of the coolest details in all of the New Testament is found in John chapter 20, verse 12. Write it down, look at it later. But here's what happened. When Jesus was resurrected and they went to the tomb to see what had happened, John records this detail for us that there were two angels inside the tomb. One was at the head of where Jesus had been laid and the other was at the foot. They were arranged exactly like the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant, right there on the mercy seat. Jesus became the mercy seat for us. His blood was poured out as the day of atonement sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins and the forgiveness of mine. Do you see the imagery Jesus became the mercy seat for us. It all pointed to Jesus. The tabernacle, the scapegoat, the sacrifices, those things were just a shadow. 
They were a placeholder for the reality, and the reality was Christ. And he entered that most holy place, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. And he secured our redemption forever. And now that redemption is offered freely to you and to me. And all we have to do is receive it by faith and his perfect life and his sacrificial death are credited to us. If you came in here this morning thinking there is no way I could be forgiven. If people knew what I did, it's just, it's awful. There's no way I could be forgiven. I want you to listen to me. That is a lie from the enemy and it is designed to keep you trapped in a prison of guilt and shame and hopelessness. But the truth is Christ, and he has done everything necessary to free you from the guilt of your sin. You may think your sin is bad. I'm here to tell you it's worse than you think. But God's grace is greater than you can imagine. And Jesus paid the price so that you could be set free. If you don't know that forgiveness, if you don't know the hope that Christ has offered, don't leave here this morning believing the lie. You can settle your debt with God this morning. And we'd love to help you do that. I'll be up front after the service. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. Come on up and, uh, and we'll take care of business this morning. Let me pray for us. Father God, Thank you for saving me. Father, I thank you that when I was dead in my sin, you made me alive with Christ. God, I thank you that though the wages of sin is death, that the the gift that you gave is eternal life through Jesus Christ, your son, the God of heaven, stepping into his sin-soaked creation living a a perfect life of, of love and humility and obedience before you and then laying that life down as a sacrifice for my sins. He lived the life I could not live. He died the death that I deserved. And then you raised him to life by your powerful Holy Spirit, giving us hope beyond the grave. Father, I pray that if there are those here this morning who have just decided that there's no way that your grace could reach them. Father, I pray that you would show that lie for what it is. And I pray that they would move toward you in boldness and find you faithful as you have told us that you are. God, that you would be faithful to them to remove, to cover over their sin and to completely remove it from us. God, thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for his atoning sacrifice on our behalf. God, we love you. We are your people, and we cannot wait to be with you forever. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand, and let's uh, sing this last song in response to what we've heard today.